Can I swear on here, <laughs> Bruce? Can I swear? <laughs> What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Beam Radio. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Beam Radio. I am one of your hosts today, Sophie Benedetto. I am joined by Bruce Tate. Hey, Bruce. Hi, from Chattanooga, Tennessee. And we also have Lars Vickman with us today. Hi, Lars. Hello. Um, we have a very special guest. I say that all the time whenever we have a guest because they're all very special, but I am particularly excited to talk with our guests today. And I think you guys will understand why once we introduce them. But before we do, we always like to shout out and thank our sponsors. And luckily for us, we have our sponsors here represented by our two co-hosts today. So uh, we always like to say thank you to Graxio. Thanks, you, thank you to Underyard. And uh, Bruce and Lars, you want to give us like the quick TLDR, what's new? And yeah, what's new? I talk all the time. Tell us what's going on at Underyard, Lars. Oh, uh, things are mostly chugging along. But as per usual, if anyone has a need for help finding Elixir devs, that is, if you have jobs for Elixir devs and you want to find the right ones, I can probably help you out. Excellent. All right. Uh, maybe we'll hear a little bit more from Graxio at the end then, and we'll just jump right into it. So like I said, very special guest today. I am very excited to welcome and introduce Brian Cartarella. Brian is the CEO of Dockyard, which our listeners probably have heard of, uh, the go-to Elixir consultancy. And there's a lot of very innovative, um, very interesting, and I think very impactful stuff coming out of Dockyard these days. So welcome, Brian. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Brian, we have so many things that we want to ask you about today, but what we always like to do when our guests join us is tee up an opportunity for you to talk a little bit about you. And we'd like to start by asking, um, how did you get into the Elixir community? What brought you to the Elixir programming language? So I started Dockyard in 2009, and it was, I'd say, kind of on the height of the hype cycle of Rails. Um, I was a very early adopter of Rails pre 1.0. Back in like late 2003, 2004, uh, I, I I constantly credit it for giving me an, a career. Um, as much as I think the technology, you know, things have moved on from that that tech stack. Without Rails, I would be in a very different uh, place today, and I think uh, the world also would be in a very different place today. Um, but I very anecdotally got to know Jose. Um, I don't think he knew me, but at least I know I knew of him and respected his work um, through the Rails core team. And we had migrated, you know, consultancy, I tend to think has to remain as a subject matter expert in technologies, which means we're constantly having to reinvent ourselves to a degree, which is exhausting. Um, staying on the edge of technology because we're not really built for kind of like commodity type sales. We are more like staff augmentation or people want to come in and build a project in this. Um, and so, you know, we have a high price point, but we also tend to work in technologies that there are a few other people that can do it in, in ways that few other people can do it in. So we had um, uh, kind of changed uh, tone over to focus on client-side application development with Ember.js. Uh, and again, that was uh, through a Rails uh, core team member, Yehuda Katz, uh, pushed that project. Um, we were looking to kind of swap out our backend away from Rails due to some of the performance uh, bottlenecks we were seeing, especially with early stage companies not being able to afford, you know, some of the hardware scaling that was required. Um, and solving these problems in software, especially when we start talking about concurrency, were becoming very expensive problems to solve. Uh, around that time, I believe 
Uh, I had known that uh, Jose was uh, doing Elixir for a period of time, and I had become interested in Erlang due to a coworker at, I worked at the Democratic National Committee, and a coworker of mine, Chris Gill, um, was fascinated with Erlang. But as soon as I saw the syntax, I was like, ew, gross. No, I don't want to put periods at the end of my statements, um, which I know it's, you know, syntax does matter, I believe. And so um, I, I kind of kept, I'd say some sort of like, uh, you know, just eyes on the Elixir project, uh, watched it kind of go through this permutation of originally, originally chasing an OOP implementation built on top of Erlang into what it is now. And um, I don't remember when uh, Dave Thomas's book came out, whether it was around Elixir 1.0 or not, but I, when the book was in beta, I believe I bought it and I read it in a week and I came into work and I said, all right, we're doing this like period, full stop. And, you know, Dockyard was a much smaller company then. Um, everyone was physically in the same place and it was easier for us to kind of stop and, you know, turn on a dime. Um, we had existing Elixir and Phoenix, uh, sorry, Rails developers in house. Uh, so my experience, especially with the, with the way that Phoenix was in the earlier days, like its project structure mirrored rails. So there was very little kind of cognitive load to move over to it. The syntax was similar to Ruby. It was a very easy transition. Um, we actually lost a client because we had built it in Phoenix um, as they requested, but they wanted training and I, we weren't set up for training. And so I was suggesting that they just get Dave Thomas's book and read it in a week. They could be effective rails, uh, sorry, Phoenix developers. And they didn't like that answer, but I still stand by that. I think that transitioning from Ruby and Rails to Elixir and Phoenix um, is is a viable career path in a very short period of time. Uh, so I don't remember how long it was, maybe within six months or so. I used to write these annual kind of uh, perspectives on Dockyard and probably shared too much on how the sausage is made. Is that a consultancy? I, I'm, not, I'm less willing to do nowadays just because, uh, you know, optics matter to a degree and, you know, controlling the message does matter for companies. It's when you throw everything out there, you're allowing everyone to just interpret it however they want, rather than what it actually, you know, way things actually happened. But um, regardless, I had something, I said something to the effect of, uh, we are now an Elixir consultancy. Uh, this was a bit of a running joke in Dockyard for a period of time where we had a phase, especially in the JavaScript world, where like every week there was a new framework that came out. And so I would constantly say, we are now a something consultancy. We are now a, Docker is now a whatever consultancy. Um, but I was serious about the, the Elixir and Phoenix uh, swap. And uh, somehow this got onto the radar of Chris McCord. He had just recently left uh, his prior job and uh, I believe the term he was using is that he was on fun employment. He was going around giving training in Phoenix and uh, other companies were offering him positions to work there and work on Phoenix. But I think he was looking for a place where there wouldn't be any outside influence put upon, put upon Phoenix. And he and I chatted. Um, I believe that he was already aware of Dockyard to some degree. And I had... Uh, used a library of his in Rails about a year or two prior. 
Um, I was doing some WebSocket stuff. I think that this was Chris's library. I forget the name of it, but I, I'd have to double check with him. But I, I think we figured it out over like a 20 minute phone call. And I say, look, Chris, you come to Dockyard, we'll fund your effort entirely. I will never ask you to put anything in Phoenix. And I believe that I lived up to that promise during the time that he was at Dockyard to the point where Chris would say, hey, you know what? Put me on client projects. <laughs> I, I want to, I, I don't think he felt bad, but I, I think he felt like he wanted to, you know, contribute in more ways than just working on Phoenix. And I would remind him and say, Phoenix being successful is of more value to Dockyard because we put all these eggs in this basket. And so doing everything we could to continue that effort and keep it, you know, keep it growing and keep it kind of, you know, development occurring was important to me. Um, I believe the only request I ever, I don't even think it was a request, more of a suggestion that I ever put towards Chris was uh, the, what eventually became live view components. Um, it was the original concept was uh, kind of mimicking the web component specification that Chris definitely, you know, did not do he, but he found a way to encapsulate behavior. And uh, this is what eventually became live view components. I still don't think the community is utilizing live, live view components in the way that um, at least I had uh, intended them to be uh, uh, utilized in the sense that we should be seeing a lot more encapsulation of these live view components and distributed as individual libraries. Like there are efforts like the pedal stack framework that do that, but it'd be great. And Docker is going to start doing this as well because we haven't been. But it'd be fantastic to see more people doing extractions of their projects and saying, hey, this live view component does this search drop down or does this and just put it on hex. Um, and perhaps we just need more education material on how to do that uh, correctly. But that that those type of things I feel are important for the growth of any technology ecosystem. Um, but my my philosophy on running Dockyard is I, I run it pretty lean in terms of margins. Um, especially over the past two years. Um, and th this can be difficult running a consultancy, especially in today's market. But uh, I know that there are significant um, business advantages to using this tech stack that are being largely untapped right now. And uh, some of the, the reasons for that tend to come down to just in other technology ecosystems, it's easy to reach on the shelf and pull off a pre-built thing. A lot of that doesn't exist in the Elixir ecosystem just yet. And so some of what we're working on at the moment is to at least provide that and continue to chip away at reasons why people say no to Elixir. Yeah, that's a, that's a great story. Um, but I think I wanna to get to another, another topic and you kind of teased it with a, with the name of your consultancy, Dockyard. Does that have a hat tip to sailing? Uh, it does. I uh, hard pivot. And a hard pivot. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I, I mean, I mentioned it several times. I am a sailor. I am a competitive uh, racer. This is actually a great time to do this conversation because I just got back from North Carolina and did uh, a race this past weekend. Um, so I've been racing sailboats since college. Um, and it's a passion of mine. It is a punishing and difficult sport. And it is one that is like playing chess on the water as much as it is a physical sport too. So, um, the name dockyard came about because I wanted originally shipyard 
you know, we're shipping software and it's kind of related to, you know, the maritime industry, which I love. Unfortunately, there's a beer in Maine called Shipyard Beer. People may know their <laughs> pumpkin beer and they own shipyard.com. Um, but the name Dockyard was available. Oh, what? Sorry, it was not available. It was owned by a guy in Marblehead, Massachusetts, who was a, I'm saying was, I actually don't know if he's still around, um, was a naval architect. And he was selling plans for like tugboat designs uh, on, on Dockyard.com. And um, I reached out to him directly. And the, the site hadn't been updated in eight, 10 years or something. Um, I reached out to him directly to see if I could acquire the domain name. No reply. And I started, this is when I started going nuts. I, I like, like, all right, I want this name. I got to find out how to get it. And um, I start looking into the individual and I was like, oh, he's like 85. He might not be alive anymore. So I reached out to like the town records of Marblehead to see if there was a death certificate. I, I just wanted to know who to contact, whether I contact like the next akin or I continue <laughs> to like contact him. Nothing was working. And finally, as much as like I hate GoDaddy, I was just like, all right, I'll pay like the $40 or whatever just to like throw this money away um, for their domain acquisition service, whatever they call it. And it worked. They reached out. He responded because he saw it was like an like somebody that was serious about buying it and not a, um, not a domain collector. And uh, I, it was like a few grand to purchase the domain name. Um, and then, you know, getting the Twitter handle Dockyard was difficult as well. Um, but I, I really didn't want to do like dockyardconsulting.com. I, I, I tend to believe that there is some validity given when you have this kind of like consistency in your naming um, and I tend to pre-optimize that quite a bit. Uh, I, I've, I have, you know, people that I know they're in the VC industry and they don't like this approach, but I, I think I've had so many great ideas, like great product ideas that have just died on the vine because I couldn't get the domain name. And I think we've all kind of felt that way at times. It's like, oh, like car.com is gone. <laughs> I can't get that. I can't do my car startup now. Something to that effect, Right. So that, that's really where Dockyard came from. For, the, for a bunch of years, I was very resistant to the idea of kind of like theming the site, where I was like, oh, we can throw sailboats in like anchors on, on the site and make it all nautically themed. It's like, no, the site, the, the, the company's called Dockyard.com. We're not going to like do this cheesy type of thing. Um, but I left Dockyard at the end of 2019, um, came back uh, at the beginning of this year in official capacity as CEO. And I kind of changed that to a, to a degree where um, part of my effort right now is focused on, yes, operationally, the company, its growth and the vision for the future. But I'm enabling that through multiple research and development projects. Um, so one of which we'll, we'll talk about in the future is LiveView Native. Um, another one is Beacon CMS. And then there's this other effort called Racing.org. And I, I call Racing.org my vanity project. You know, everything else is really meant for, uh, you know, building Dockyard's future. And there is some value to Dockyard with racing.org, um, which I can get into. Um, but I, I have a personal tie. Like, there's good reasons why we're pursuing this for the sailing industry in the competitive racing industry. Um, uh, sorry, the competitive racing sport industry in sailing. 
but uh, the the kind of benefits to Dockyard are far more like out in terms of time and effort and complexity, but it could, it could be there. So we're, we're building out several different things. Um, I mean, to, to the extent of what I just discussed, we also own the domain name racing.org now, um, cause I wanted that, but the, uh, um, some of the problems that exist in sailing is it's a sport that is eroding significantly in my time. Um, the area that I, I sail competitively in is called Hingham Bay. It's a bay that is just south of Boston, Massachusetts. I started racing around there early 2000s. And um, most racing is, yeah, people have this perception that sailing is like this, like really elitist sport. And yeah, if you're, if you're a member of like New York Yacht Club and you're part of, uh, you know, America's, America's Cup teams and all that stuff, sure, it can be that way. But I'd say I've never run across people like that ever in my decades in this sport. Nearly everyone that I know that sails is hands-on with their equipment. You know, it's a more of a blue collar background. I know every single bolt on my boat. I've taken it apart. I own a 24 foot boat. It's 2000 pounds. You have to know how to fix your boat. You have to know how to do this stuff on your own. Um, yeah, there's going to be like the Larry Ellison types that just go out and buy like a mega yacht. That's not sailing that, that is, you know, you know, that's a different world entirely. And so, you know, every now and then on Twitter, I'll get, I'll catch crap from somebody that's, Oh, he's got a sailboat in his background. Like, all right. Yeah. To those people, I say, bleep you, I say, bleep you, you know, <laughs> something that I enjoy, go bleep yourself. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, it's, but it's a, it's a sport that is dying off and it's dying for several different reasons. It's eating itself. It, it's become far too expensive, which I think plays into the whole kind of perception around the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the elite aspect of it. Um, but it's become far too expensive because the sport has trended towards um, what are called racer cruisers. Uh, people that cannot afford to just buy a dedicated boat for racing tend to justify the cost by buying a boat that they can also go out and cruise on. Um, and these boats require more people to crew. Uh, you take a boat that's typically like nowadays going for like twenty to fifty thousand dollars. That would be a racing boat that would take a crew of four. You now flip it over to a like eighty to one hundred thousand uh, dollar cruiser racer boat, and now you need a crew of eight. So the the talented crew in the area is becoming limited. Um, the cost, the, the the cost to actually get into the sport is increasing, and the sport is becoming less equitable in terms of fairness. So I, I tend to look at this in several different ways. That what impact can I make? And I volunteer in my town's high school uh, sailing team. I'm an assistant coach to try to produce new generations of sailors. But there's this other aspect of how do you actually uh, take people that have limited sailing experience, make them better, but then transition them out of what's called dinghy sailing over to keelboat sailing. And so I'm getting to where this kind of starts to tie into Elixir um, at, you know, very, very soon. So um, with the racing.org effort, um, there were several different key areas that I felt like we can make an impact. The first of which is uh, data capture. So on most keelboats that are racing, there is a significant amount of instrumentation. 
um, and Bruce and I have talked about this, the state of kind of marine technology is atrocious. It is way overpriced and hugely underpowered. There are some justifications on why the, the tech is so bad because you have to harden it for the environment, especially when exposed to salt water. Uh, you have limited cooling options like air cooling because you don't want like salty air to come through and just uh, nuke everything inside. But the real reason is because the, the instrument companies are owned by like two companies at this point. Like I have instruments on my boat from a company called B&G and they came about as a kind of like, hey, we're going to do something new. And then they got bought by this other company called Navico. That company was bought by Brunswick and they make bowling pins. So they don't really care about like really continuing to invest in the technology. They just care that they had a particular market they could corner. And Navico, uh, Navico through Brunswick owns like four different uh, like Lowrance and Simrad. These are all effectively like the same marketing sites at this, this point, the same companies you call the same number for tech support. They just slap different stickers on the technology. It's it's a unfortunate thing because we're kind of at this point now where Raspberry Pis are pretty cheap. You're at this point where like hardware power is very accessible, but no one's doing anything that actually improve on the boat. There's a there is a counterpoint here that sailing should be a way to get should be a reason to get away from all this stuff. But I'm a software engineer, and so I'm trying to marry the two things. Um, so when it comes to like data analysis, data tracking, these exist on boats to a degree. Like if you look at big offshore racing, you're going to see uh, like that data tracking, but they're going hundreds, if not thousands of miles. And so they check in, they, they send data up maybe once every minute or so, or once every few minutes. And when you're zoomed out, like it looks like a consistent track, but, but for most sailing, it happens near shore or inshore. So I'm wondering, can you put us on the water? Can you tell us what a race is like? Um, yeah. Just kind of give our um, our listeners a, a sense of, of mm -hmm. what's happening. Yeah, on a sailboat race, uh, it most courses are called what are windward lure courses, where you have a starting line, and then you have a mark that's going to be a distance away. This is directly upwind. And then you have a mark that is a distance away downwind from the starting line. And you typically always start upwind and... In a sailboat, you can't go directly upwind, so you have to do what's called tacking. You get as close to the wind as possible with with speed, and you have to tack through the wind, and you kind of like tack, 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 tack your way up. Um, you round the mark, and then you bring out a, another sail called a spinnaker. You go downwind. You go down to the the, the, op, the, the downwind mark or leeward mark. You round that, and then you typically come back up to the finish. This is called a windward lure course. as windward lure twice around, which is the same thing. You go around twice. And then there's like 100 different course configuration types after that. Most of them, however, run windward lure courses. Okay, so you've got this. Yep. So you've got this course and you describe this as chess on the water. So I yeah. imagine that get that doing the optimum tax at the optimum times, getting the spinnaker up at the right time, all of these things are what or what are you trying to optimize? Everything. So, for example, um, you have so many variables to consider when you're sailing a boat. Number one, you have to understand what the performance characteristics of your boat are. You have to have a crew that understands their individual positions and that are competent at them and can execute them cleanly and quickly. And when something goes wrong and something always goes wrong, that they can recover from it very fast. Um, you have to be aware of the boat's heel. So when the boat is kind of like sailing upwind and it's on a side, that's called heel. 
Keel affects several different factors in the boat. It, everything is about producing as much lift and reducing drag as much as possible. And you have multiple controls for changing the shape of the sail. You have uh, the boom to change the angle of attack of the sail to the wind. You have the tiller to change the angle of attack of the, of the boat to the wind, which also induces drag through the rudder. You have a keel that produces its own lift. You have the bottom of the boat, which depending upon how clean it is, may impact the performance of the boat. You have the age of the sails that could be stretched, that could be ratty. Um, you have, uh, you know, even the mast itself, you have rig tension, which is how you in, like can put, um, basically there's wire ropes that come out of the out of the mast and go down to the boat. The more you tighten these, this will induce what's called rake on the, on the mast to kind of bend it back. This changes the sail uh, shape again. Uh, it is, and then on top of that, that's just your boat. You have to be worrying about all the other boats in the course. And by the way, the wind is constantly changing um, based upon several different things. So if you're racing in salt water, the salinity of the water may impact how much wetted surface your boat has, which is going to be drag. You may have temperature variance between the land and the ocean. You may have new weather systems coming in you have to account for. You may have uh, depending upon the area, wind shear, which means that the, the speed of the wind at ground level or sea level is going to be different than it is at 30 feet up or 50 feet up for your mast height. You have to be aware of that. Um, you have to be aware of uh, just obstacles on the course as well. Uh, you have to be aware of currents. You have to be aware of wave heights. Like my boat only weighs 2,000 pounds. And if I hit a wave wrong, we come to a dead stop. And so I have to be able to handle that and account for it. Um, it is a like it's like imagine playing football, but the field in the geometry of the field and the aspects of the field are constantly dynamic and constantly changing. And that that's kind of a one way to describe it. I, I love it because it's so, so challenging. Um, but as I said, like some of the aspects of the sport are becoming more difficult to get people into. You have people that just want to go on a powerboat and just go full throttle. Yeah, that's fun. But, you know, for me, I like I like the challenge of going out and constantly testing myself against better sailors. And as an engineer, I'm, I, I get my ass kicked on the course and then I go home. Yeah. I, I rant about it afterwards for a bit, blame everybody, but me. And then I go home and I think about it. I'm like, okay, here's the adjustments I need to make. I mean, the, the other nice thing about this too, as the sport is that you can continue to do it for almost your entire life. You can make it as physical as you want. You can enter into particular races that are going to be less physical. Um, it, it's a great sport to get into. And incredibly challenging sport. I, and the other thing is like, as much as it is expensive to own a boat, being crew on a boat and going out and sailing with other people is free. So we have a, we call it OPB, other people's boats. Um, there's always need for crew. So anyone that wants to get into sailing, they've never sailed before. We have a position for you on the boat. It's called rail meet. You go out there and you're essentially human ballast. Um, and getting that boat fly is important, but the first time there isn't somebody else on the boat that, that, uh, is usually there. Guess what? You get upgraded to that position. You start learning. And that's how I learned. Yeah. It's cool that you mentioned that it's a sport that you can do, um, you know, forever for as long as you want it. So my dad is 72. He's been a sailor for like, I don't know, 30 years. And he still yeah. does, first of all, a ton of manual labor on the boats. You were absolutely correct to call out that it is not a very elitist, uh, oh, yeah. activity and he's, you know, out there racing. He goes on other people's boats, whatever. Um, it's not necessarily a passion of mine, although as a child, I was dragged out onto many a sailboat, <laughs> but it makes him so happy. And it's so cool to hear you talk about it. It's equal parts frustrating, but equal parts enjoyable. And yeah. I, 
you know, the stresses from work and stuff at times build up and getting out to go like racing completely just detached me from that. And that's what I love about it. Yeah. Um, I think my dad feels similarly. He calls it the thinking man's sport because it's, you know, it's very active and you're kind of, you're away from certainly work and your desk and your computer, but there's so much information that you have to integrate. And it's all vector based in order not and, to die first of all. Yes. And so like knowing like the angles that, that you need to take to, to, mm-hmm. to go up when performantly, but then if you have, you know, current coming in at an adverse angle, you have to take that into account. I mean, it's all, it comes down to like all vector math. If you can run those numbers in your head, you do, you tend to do very well. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely a math, math based sport. Um, which is another thing that personally I don't love about it, but you know, my dad really appreciates that about (laughs) it too. That is in some way what we're, we're attempting to tackle with some of these, you know, tools for racing Mm -hmm. network. So, so let me me get into like the aspects of that. So the data tracker that we're doing is a nervous device. Um, and it's high resolution capturing data one, uh, like, so on most boats, they have a, uh, the, the standard is called NMEA 2K. And it's a CAN bus network. Um, all the messages are being broadcast out constantly. Um, we capture that message. We capture all like the state of those messages every second. And then over GSM, we'll send it up to our server uh, for a playback. And we had these devices on several boats this summer. And we were able to play back actually our races, but be able to show very high resolution uh, data points. It's always like when you're on the water, you see someone doing better than you. And it's like, what are they doing? Are they in better wind? Are they in like more favorable current? Like what is happening? Um, or are we just sailing like crap? And using this data has been huge for helping to do like post-race analysis on your own, uh, improving yourself as a sailor. But it's become very evident on why no one else has tackled this before, because the amount of data that we're capturing and storing is insanely huge. Like we we built up a server that is... I mean, it's on Fly, and Fly has just, sorry, Fly, but your database tier is terrible. <laughs> and they know it, but it's true. And so we are constantly like falling down on you know, the, the service constantly crashing. We, we're moving over to a timescale database, and that's going to be like the next version of the application where the data, I mean, we're, you know, essentially doing like write once, read many uh, approach here. And so, uh, using a different way to store the data and retrieve it and build the aggregates is absolutely necessary. And I think that we're just going to be hosting it on the, the database, at least on timescale uh, DB. Um, I think that they, if I remember correctly, that was the service that we're ultimately using. They host their own like Postgres instances. And then we just can, you know, use Fly for all the application instances. Yeah, fundamentally, it's analytics data. So it's metrics and... Yeah, but then you have to run analysis upon it. Um, And so knowing like there are rating systems because all these boats are like there's two primary types of racing. There's what's called one design racing where all the boats are the same. And so you all start at the same time and whoever like first of the line uh, wins. And there's handicap racing, which is uh, a significantly more complex problem because you have boats that are all different types. How do you fairly race these boats against one another? Well, there's been multiple ways to try to handicap boats based upon the performance characteristics. But as it turns out, different boats perform differently in different conditions. So a heavier boat may work well in offshore situations with waves. Um, It may also uh, tend to be better, like some boats may be better on lakes. Um, So there's been ways, like there's been attempts to try to 
quantify this. One of the first real ways to do it that was like largely adopted is called PHRF. Um, it's a handicap system. The problem with PHRF was that it was, or PERF, most people call it, um, it was highly subjective. So you get a PERF certificate in a rating and essentially this number was just a flat number. So if you had, like my boat had the number 100, your boat had the number 110, that means that I owe you 10 seconds per mile. So if we have a one mile race and I finish nine seconds ahead of you, I win. But if I finish 11 seconds ahead of you, you win. Um, and that, that was a fun way to do it. But when the wind speed changes, like the, the performance characteristics of the boat also change. And so there was more variability than what PERF was accounting for. Back in the 80s, MIT developed this system called VPP, Velocity Prediction Performance. Uh, sorry, Velocity Performance Prediction. And it tried to take a more analytical approach where it took the measurements of the boat. Um, Perf took measurements, but it had like a person that was just saying, I think it does this. I think it does that. Um, VBP was like, we have a calculation. We have an algorithm that we run all the measurements through and we can kind of spit out different performance numbers based upon the wind ranges. However, the, the problems with VPP is that most of the calculations are, are kind of like back of the napkin math. Um, their interpolations are primarily linear, um, like wind shear, for example, uh, is a huge factor for most boats because it may be like super light wind, but 40 feet up, it could be like two to three times the wind speed. Um, and they were just like a lot of VPPs use a linear interpolation on the mast height down, but that's not the way it works. Cur like there's a curvature, uh, there's a power curve in terms of the um, uh, uh, wind shear application, but for simplicity's sake, they tend to use like linear interpolations for things. And so what, where this started to become a huge problem in the sport was um, the technology of sailboats has advanced significantly over the past few decades uh, where you have like heavier displacement boats that weigh like five, 10, 20 tons um, moving over to trying to get as much weight off the boat as possible to creating boats that come up on a plane, get out of the water. So no longer pushing water, which slows the boat down significantly. And they kind of like, you know, sail. That's not the foiling boats that people are seeing nowadays. This is what are called sport boats. I own a sport boat and my boat only weighs 2000 pounds. And so the VPPs tend to assume that in light air situations, because there isn't much weight to the boat that they can just take off. But observationally, this is not what happens. So um, in the United States, uh, the, uh, sport boats have not significantly caught on outside of one design situations because they're just not rated very well. And there's not really much motivation to change that. Uh, on top of that, the, the VPPs themselves are all closed. There's like one VPP that's open that's used in Europe. Um, but you kind of challenge these, uh, you know, the, the, the gatekeepers of these spaces, they get very defensive. They're, they're kind of comfortable in their spot. Um, they don't want to take on new things. Um, and I collected a ton of data like object, like objectively showing that some of their performance prediction numbers are unachievable. I I'm fortunate that I have a sister boat in my area. And, uh, the, the way, like so the number that we use is called VMG velocity. We make good. Meaning that if you have an upwind, you have an upwind point that you can't sail directly to, you have to tech, 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 like what is the velocity along that line going straight up as you're sailing at angles to go up it and same thing downwind. Um, and so we call it like VMG performance meaning what percentage of that VMG number that the rating system says you should be able to get to, are you achieving? 
And downwind, most sport boats regularly are achieving greater than 95%, which means that, okay, these VPPs are probably accurately predicting downwind performance. But upwind, they can't really break 83%. Whereas heavier displacement boats are regularly achieving over 90%. So when you get time corrected based upon the handicap, like I beat, um, I, I get you know lucky every now and then I do well. I beat all the other boats in my uh, fleet one night over the line. The next boat didn't finish for another five minutes after me. I got time corrected to third. And I was just like, all right, <laughs> there's no way I could possibly win. And this, is, this isn't fair. Rough. And yeah, and so like, yeah, getting, it wasn't even that long of a race. It was a 90 minute race. Um, and so, so wait a minute. It, so you have this. So so you have this system um, yeah. that's that has all of these angles and vectors and optimization to the vectors. This sounds to me like NX and autograd. Am I wrong? Uh, no, you're not wrong. I mean, these are these can be represented as tensors. And that's the direction that right. we're, we're moving towards to a degree. So. The lack of complexity in the VPP models is due in part because doing it the true, like actual programmatic way requires what's called computational fluid dynamics. And the underlying formula used in CFD simulators is called Navier-Stokes. Navier-Stokes is a mathematical formula that was developed, I think, 150 years ago. It's kind of blows my mind, like how much math was done like centuries ago that we're now leveraging for like video games and I guess my sailing simulator and stuff like that. Um, but uh, uh, Navier-Stokes is a incredible, so first of all, Navier-Stokes is not a smooth calculation because it's not a proof. And because of that, Navier-Stokes-based simulators, there's one open source called OpenFoam and there's a whole bunch of others. They're very slow in rendering, but their accuracy is very, very high. Uh, up until a few years ago, like rendering out a single frame in, in Navier-Stokes-based CFD, for a certain level of complexity of model. Like I forget how many uh, vertices we're talking about in the models, but you know, fairly high. And they, they use this for like aviation and cars and you know, even building like um, skyscrapers. We, they need to know what happens when wind flows over a skyscraper at a particular speed. Is it just gonna, is the flow gonna attach to the building and just rip it down? Um, but rendering out these frames, so it would sometimes take weeks to sometimes months for a single frame. Uh, there has been a, uh, a push among in the academic field to moving over to a different algorithm called Lattice Boltzmann. Lattice Boltzmann uses lattices. And the nice thing about Lattice Boltzmann is that it lines very well with using floating point computation, which means we can accelerate it with GPUs. And if we are developing it, uh, the solvers correctly, then we can distribute the work and it lines very well with NX at that point. So we, we hired a, uh, a CFD PhD um, that's been working on our last Boltzmann solver for, for uh, like sailboat uh, lift calculations. And the, the, on top of that, it's not just air we're talking about. So the other co uh, complexity here, it's, it's really what we call a multi-phase problem, meaning that we have to calculate the flow of the air over the sails, but we also have to calculate the flow of the water over the hull, the rudder, or my, my case, I have rudders, uh, and then the keel. And these become two vectors that you can either just take the two vectors and add them together at that point to get like one performance vector out of it. But in our case, we're, uh, um, Colton, um, who's been uh, developing this, he has been using some really recent uh, advances in last Boltzmann calculations to produce a, a single phase uh, calculation, which is huge because it saves a ton of time. But he's been developing in Python uh, because he's familiar with Python. 
And so Paulo, who is uh, at Dockyard and on the NX Core team, um, next week, actually, Paulo's in Brazil, so I'm not asking him to work for Thanksgiving. Um, next week, uh, they're looking to take some of the, we need to validate if it's actually more performant to move it over to NX. And Paulo's very confident that it will be, especially when we start to get into distribution. And so they're taking some of the uh, more simple to uh, rewrite aspects of the solver and rewriting it in NX. And so we're, we're hopefully going to be in a few weeks to be able to show that and produce some papers from this on doing something that no one else has done before, which is a highly performant Lattice Boltzmann uh, CFD solver built with GPU optimization and distribution. And we hope to produce as much as we can in the open source space. You know, it doesn't really do me any good to like do all the stuff and then, you know, take it as my own tool and go out and start kicking everybody's butt because the computer's telling me to do something because I want more people to participate. And so if we can actually build something to make everyone else better and allow them to learn how to sail their boat uh, more performantly, that is a win for, for me. And that that's really what I'm after. And in the space of sailing, like it's no, like everyone's just like money, 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 like give me money. I, like I'm hoping to kind of push it off in a different direction and create a rating system that is uh, fair and equitable, but also uh, eventually get to the point, like if we actually can say, here are the performance characteristics of this boat. Oh, and by the way, we know the geometry of the course. We know the GPS positions of these marks. We know the topology of the land. We know what the current is doing. Uh, Paulo has been working on a reinforcement learning system to actually do route optimization within a course. Uh, so the idea is after you race and you, you track all your data, you can go on racing.org and then you can kind of run like Mario Kart ghost, like ghost boat behind you. And they say, here's what the ghost did. Because yeah, the ghost is saying, here's the most optimized course based upon what your boat should be able to do in the conditions of the race course. So having a coach out there is something that only very you know well-off people can do. It's very expensive to have a ceiling coach. Um, but if we can turn this into a service that people can pay like 10 bucks a month and get arguably something that would be better than an in-person ceiling coach, that I feel like is going to help level out the playing field of the sport. And finally, there's this concept of called local knowledge. And you have people that don't go sailing anywhere, but where they grew up. And they know every single little like uh, nook and cranny of where they sail. And so they don't even like, they may be adequate in handling their boat, but they just happen to know that at this particular time of day, uh, when the sun is hitting the building over there and it's bouncing off and someone farted down the street, like we get a little lift going in this direction. Like it's, it's insane. Like there's a guy that I sail with when the, his, uh, uncle used to go out on the bay when it froze and look at the stream of the bubbles underneath to see what the current was doing. Like this is the, like the nutty depths that sailors go to, to get, you know, get an edge. But if we can like flatten that out, remove the whole local knowledge aspect, or at least make it, um, you know, so that you don't have to spend 40 years in a single area just to learn it. Then we're hoping to accelerate people's uh, acquisition of knowledge in the sport and make it a more fair sport. And hopefully this draws more people in and brings people back to it. So you're talking about almost chess lessons, right? To a degree. <laughs> it's, it's the chess aspect, but, um, but you're able to do it um, not just by memorizing moves, right? You're, you're able to do it by teaching the nature of the course, by teaching what the ghost boat does, by teaching mm -hmm. what here was the optimal move at this instant in the race, which is far more relatable. That's really cool, Brian. And the open aspects kind of explains the .org. 
Yeah, yeah, .org. So there is one thing that we cannot do open, is which is our implementation of the NMEA 2K specification. That's a close spec. Um, we actually have uh, Chris Dutton, who uh, worked with Garth Hitchens at Rose Point Navigation, which for those of you that, that may be aware, they're one of the first like big adopters of NERVs. Chris sits on the NMEA 2K standards committee, and he is implementing our uh, our NMA 2K uh, library. Unfortunately, due to the license restrictions, we cannot open source that. But um, my intent is to try to do as much as we can. That doesn't completely bankrupt me. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. So that's interesting. So most of this sounds like it's like streaming it off to a server and then doing an analysis after the fact. Is there yeah. any use for analysis like on the front lines at the time of race? I'm curious, like, could you shove like so, a coral accelerator onto a nerves device and just do some TF light out there? You can, but it, so we have this sailing by and large is kind of like, uh, you know, everyone's kind of trying to be honest with one another out there. And I would consider that to be cheating. You know, having the computer tell you what to do beforehand or even during the race I don't think is in the spirit of the sport. There's this, yeah. uh, it's called the Corinthian spirit, uh, spirit in sailing where, you know, everyone's kind of using the honor system. Um, and by and large, it has worked. Uh, you know, every now and then you have a jerk that like, you know, finds ways around it. But I, I don't want to do something that would be pointed out. Because like, right, if we had done, if we do that, like people are just going to say, look, we're not going to allow that in our sailing uh, region. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm very much aware that it could have that perception that some people may be looking, oh, it's AI, it's machine learning. Like you're just letting the, the robot sail the boat. And so I'm very careful to call this. This is a post-race analysis tool. Yeah, oh, that's fair. Uh, coming from outside, it's like, yeah, I have no idea what you're allowed to do on these boats. Yeah, no, 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 no. It, it's a good question because it's- Can you have more It's tempting. Yeah, it, it's, it's tempting, right? And it's like, okay, you know, knowing on, I'd say that it's completely valid to go out and uh, use it like for practice uh, while on the boat, because, you know, waiting to get off the boat to like check out what you're doing or get feedback is maybe a too, you know, you know, too slow of a feedback loop. Mm -hmm. Or if you are going to be honest about it and do it during a race, but resign from the race. So you're not impacting uh, the results. Um, yeah. I think that's totally valid as well. And we're, I'm, so I already told the head of our racing organization that I intend to do that. I need to validate this on the water to a degree, uh, but I will just, I'll go out and race. I'll be a competitor out there, but I, I don't intend to, I tend to resign from every single race that I am uh, doing something that I don't believe should be in the sport during the race. But um, Sounds like a fair it, way to run an experiment. Yeah. 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 This is all way cool. And I, I, can't tell you how much I would have given to have such tools, even in a trawler, right? Yeah. Um, to, to be able to help make those decisions to optimize what I'm trying to optimize, right? Well, I'd like to also eventually get to the point where we start to develop instruments. I, I like I had a powerboat and Bruce, I think you and I spoke about this. Like I had um um I forget the the brand I had on there, but they're they're kind of like top end stuff, but it had a touch screen. And you press the button and it would take like five seconds to page over. And I was like, all right, they charged me like a ton of money, <laughs> put in some like junk CPU in here and they just walk away laughing. And I'm so sick of that. Like I, what I would like to do is have like some high powered, like, like almost like an iPhone type experience in terms of the performance 
on the boat, um, maybe even looking at like an e-ink display because when you're out in the sun, the, the glare on the screens is very difficult to manage at times. And there's all sorts of like different like lighting and dimming configurations that people go through to try to get, a, uh, you know, try to address that. But an e-ink display, I feel like largely would solve that. Whether or not you'd want to backlight at night, um, you know, to be determined. But the other thing they're like that makes some of this really difficult is really how much power do you have on your boat? You know, you can load it up with batteries, but guess what? You're adding weight to the boat. And that weight may be detrimental to your performance. I have a Dakota Lithium uh, 12 uh, volt 54 amp hour battery on the boat. That weighs about 30 pounds. And that's about as high as I'm willing to go. I put a 133 watt solar panel to recharge. But just this past weekend when, when I was racing, um, there was no sun on Saturday. And guess what? I used up, I, like, I checked the voltage before I left the boat that evening and it was below 12 volts. So I had to pull the battery off and charge it on land. And so the next like decade or so, I think is going to be transformative for this because I've been really high on next gen batteries like solid state. Um, when that starts to get into the market and starts to be used for applications beyond cars, I think solves or addresses a lot of these problems like weight, uh, capacity, et cetera. Um, and when you have more power on the boat, then you can you know spare some of that power for better instrumentation as well. But I, I do think that the current state of instrumentation can be largely improved with it, with the current power uh, restrictions. Oh, by the way, we're also we uh, Docker is just a consultancy. We don't do any of this stuff. <laughs> we're consulting, <laughs> completely unrelated to the rest oh, of the. That's business. all good. Yeah, that's all good. So that's so I remember talking to you at ElixirConf about this and say, hey, um, this is so off the wall, and um, it's it's a topic that has so much overlap with our industry yet is like so kind of quirky and cool. We, we had to have this on, on the podcast. Yeah, I, I hope that we're going to be maybe uh, Q1 next year having some validation output from this effort to rewrite some of these solvers in NX. Um, if it's looking positive, we intend to publish a paper, but we'll also do blog posts, which of course are going to be more palatable to most of the Elixir, uh, uh, you know, most people out there in Elixir. I feel like this is where the, the kind of the part of the life cycle that NX is starting to enter into. You know, you have all these great toolings that have been uh, tools that have been developed, but now there needs to be like data differentiating it from what other machine learning Python is offering. You know, you 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 can uh, you have to actually show that okay, it has all this potential, but you need to show like the actuals, and you need to actually be able to like. It can't just be like, oh, it's a little bit faster or it's a little bit easier. It has to have an order of magnitude improvement in order to get people to want to move away from their existing thing over to the next thing. Um, and within the Elixir community itself, um, we still know lots of people that are still implementing Python instead of NX. And it's not because they don't like NX. It's just because they... It's, it's difficult to justify some of it internally when it comes to like, oh, we can, there's this Python libraries that are exist. We can just pull this in or we have to build it from scratch in NX. It, it's rapidly evolving. The amount of progress that they've made on that project is blowing my mind over the past few years. Um, but these are still real problems that have to be addressed and solved. You can't just, you know, one of the, I, I said early on that, you know, one of the technologies we transitioned to was Ember.js and I could go on a, like a three hour podcast to just like 
talk about all the issues that existed with that project and why it didn't win. But one issue it didn't have was that it, it, it wasn't good. It was an excellent framework and still is an excellent framework that was really well built. But they had this kind of ethos that if you build it, they will come. You can't assume that in technology. You can like the, the history of tech is littered with the graveyard of better ideas. You have to build something and then you have to go out and sell it. Like Java only exists in the, the level it does right now because Sun Microsystems back in the late 90s dedicated half a billion dollars, half a billion dollars to a marketing campaign and just shoved it down everyone's throat. And that's, that's the reason people disagree, but that's the reason why Java got so huge. There was a commercial for Java on the, on the Super Bowl. Like, <laughs> where do you see that? And yeah, they, they yeah. just, they pushed it, pushed it, pushed it. So as software engineers, we tend to like dislike marketing, but guess what? Your job is dependent upon it because if you want to use Elixir, it has to be a success. Other people that are not engineers need to buy into its values, which require a way to articulate that to different audiences. Yeah, that's an awesome place to wrap up just because we're uh, getting to the end of our time together. This was so interesting. It's always so rewarding to hear people really get into something that they're passionate about um, and bonus points for the fact that it is connected to Elixir. It is connected to NX. Um, Brian, so let's wrap it up with... Uh, where can our listeners find out more about any of the things that you have shared with us? And then as a sort of final closing note, if you want to shout out anything new and interesting coming out of Dockyard that folks might want to keep an eye out for, um, mm. let's hear it. We have uh, we have a GitHub org called Open Sailing, just one word. And we've been publishing as much as we can there. It ha there hasn't been much movement on it recently because I've kind of changed a lot of the internal development over to uh, the CFD solver, which primarily exists on Colton's machine at the moment. Cause it, this is like a multi-year effort to, to get anything, even to proof of concept. But I believe we will probably try to open source the NX work that comes out of that. If it's validated, the uh, there's other things that are on there. I, I think that the enemy 2k library, it should be a closed repo so people can access it because of the license restrictions. But um, like there's different things. Like we have the plans for the data trackers that we built we actually built ones for dinghies as well. Um, uh, like th those were not NX though. That's why I didn't really talk about them because the form factor at the time was not great for NX. We're working with a, a nerves developer, Gus Workman. Um, uh, and he's, he has a ceiling background, which is great. And we're developing the V2 of those, uh, those data trackers for dinghies. And I hope to have them deployed for the fall, sorry, for the spring uh, high school season. So we can start like tracking our, our sailors performance and playing back races, showing situational stuff. The first kind of versions of those real quickly, I'll just say, uh, was like perfect example of something that worked like in the lab. And then as soon as you put it in the field, just didn't work at all. Um, they were low based, the, uh, kind of communications protocol, um, LoRa, we were thinking over water, you know, has good line of sight, but as it turns out, the mass of the boat ends up being quite the interference. They would skip their uh, kick out. We had a giant LoRa antenna sticking out. Those got ripped off with like within like two or three days. I mean, these are these are four twenties, which are sixteen foot boats, and they regularly capsize. Um, they're not dangerous; it just happens. They go down. The kids get them back up, uh, and then we had a physical toggle to turn it on and off. And we were finding the kid the kids weren't just turning it on. Uh, so the next version of these devices are going to be a much smaller smaller enclosure, no like physical antennas on the outside, everything internal. Um, it will be in a very low power state almost all the time and we'll wake up periodically to determine whether its position has moved uh, like 
to a degree beyond its previous position. And if it has, it goes into like a high power state. Now it's on and tracking. Um, and then GSM is a low raw, so we get rid of the line of sight issues and a solar power, in, a solar panel integrated because we have to pull the other ones off and recharge them periodically. So that's that's what we hope to uh, get out in those. Um, I believe we're going to be releasing all those plants uh, online. Um, and the, the previous version of the plants of, the, of both the keelboat tracker, which is a um, uh, a nerves device, and then the dinghy trackers are on that open ceiling org. Very cool. All right. On that note, Brian, before you go. Um, anything from Dockyard that you want to give a shout out to before we wrap up? Um, yeah, we are constantly looking for great clients to work with. Um, we are uh, getting very close. I know I've been uh, holding it back for a while, but very, very close to LiveView Native release. This is the version you can use, as I'm calling it. We're looking for more early adopters, uh, companies that are interested in taking a chance on LiveView Native. We need those use cases. We need those. Uh, and we have one already. We have a uh, first company that I believe that the work starts in January. Um, and I'll just say it on, on here. If you come to us and want to build a LiveView Native application, we are giving significant discounts. Like great, like we're cutting deeper uh, than 50% discount because I look at it as a partnership at that point. You, you're taking a chance on adopting this uh, new framework. We're uh, going to give you a huge financial break on it. In exchange, we can uh, uh, get... Uh, we write a case study around it um, and uh, increase the use cases, probably fix a lot of bugs too. But we're not charging it, that that time that we charge for does not include any changes or bug fixes that are required to go back in the library. We do that on, on our own time. Um, but I want LiveView Native to be a success. I constantly say that, you know, we're hoping this project changes the perception of Elixir beyond just a web-based technology. Um, LiveView Native allows you to build applications for anything with the screen. So uh, the Swift UI client is going to be uh, ready to start using in December. The Jetpack Compose client, which is Android's uh, UI framework. Um, this is probably going to be late Q1, early Q2 is when we get a version out that uh, people can start using. At that point, we've covered like majority of the devices out there. And I hope to also uh, build a WinUI 3 framework. Um, and then we have someone that has been building a Flutter client. Uh, LiveView Native, not at Dockyard. Someone else outside of Dockyard has been building a LiveView Native Flutter client, which is awesome. So uh, that that's like been my primary focus at Dockyard is uh, getting LiveView Native done. But also in a way, like we could have released it a while ago, performance would have been crap. And I don't think it would have met its acceptance criteria that I say when we're releasing an open source library or framework such as this, it needs to be accessible and easy to use by junior engineers. It can't be this like esoteric framework that you need to be a senior level engineer to use that won't get adopted. So like we're trying to maintain as much of the way that you're building existing live applications in live native. So that that's been a lot of the struggle is uh, getting to something that's performant that still allows us to build out these native applications uh, to a level of complexity that actually makes sense for building out native applications, but also aligning as much as we can with the, uh, the way you build out live view applications. All right. I think that's where we have to put a pin in LiveView Native, but we'll be happy to, of course, have you back on as you have that release and can talk more more deeply Great. on that topic. And when we can have a new slot of time, which, uh, which we will definitely need. Uh, it's a very, very interesting piece of tech. All right. Uh, thank you so much, Brian, for coming on the show. And thank you, Bruce and Sophie, as always. Uh, another 
shout out to Broxio. Anything to add on that note, Bruce? Still career fuel for programmers? Still career fuel for programmers. And, and I think it's interesting that all the things that Brian talked about, the NX, the, um, the OTP for resilience, the Elixir um, kind of reducing type frameworks, those are all what we focus on. Um, so it's really been fun to hear them in context. All right. You can catch us next time on Beam Radio.